Welcome once again, everybody, to the Tennis Worthy Podcast, brought to you by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I'm Brett Haber, so glad to have you with us. Back in January of 2023, the Hall of Fame launched a podcast featuring 12 long-form audio interviews with some of the great names in the history of our sport. Season two is on the way in 2024, so to get you ready for that, we've taken some of the most fascinating contributions from our first 12 installments and put them together in five themes. Today's theme is tennis in the wider world. And among the players explaining how they had to deal with social and political issues that no sport can be immune from are Mats Wielander, Vijay Amritraj, Leighton Hewitt, Stan Smith, and Pam Shriver. Chris Bowers, who hosted all 12 interviews for the Tennis Worthy podcast, presents this review of the great names talking about moments when tennis had to exist in a wider context. All yours, Chris. One of the great things about tennis is that you can lose yourself in it. But for that very reason, all of us involved in it have to remember that tennis doesn't exist in a vacuum. It can be a force for good, but only if it engages in the big bad world. In the period up to 1989, numerous tennis players had to play in countries where the environment was not just partisan, it could be inherently hostile. The American Hall of Famer Stan Smith was one of them, and he played in the 1972 Davis Cup final in which the USA travelled to Bucharest to play Romania, then a Soviet bloc country with a repressive regime, and two world-class but challenging players in Jan Tiriak and Ilya Nastasi. It was a really difficult year to play them behind the Iron Curtain, the first final, uh, to play on red clay. It was raining most of the days, plus they watered the court. It was after the Munich Olympics in which the Israeli athletes had been killed. We had two Jewish members of our team. So we had unbelievable security during the time we were in Romania for about 10 days. We never stopped for a red light. Uh, we were sequestered into the 17th floor of the Intercontinental Hotel. We had translators who were with us, Bill and George, that uh, were with us the whole time. And so it was a tremendous amount of uh, pressure on the team just to play and to kind of go through the daily activities. And as it turned out, the, the most difficult person in that tie was Tyriac. Um I beat Nastasi pretty easily the first match, and he had just won the U.S. Open. And uh, I think he felt the pressure and maybe hadn't prepared as well as he could have. And so that really got us off to a great start. Then Tyriac played Gorman, and it was either be Gorman or Solomon, and Solomon had played in Spain the tie before but had gone back to school and so hadn't been playing as much. And Gorman had a pretty good record against Tyriac, and even though on clay it was not his best surface. And Gorman had a big lead, and then Tyriac started pulling his antics that were... Uh, Unbelievable, and, and Gorman's back got stiff. They went to the later in the, in the evening, and, and uh, Gorman ended up losing that match. Then we had to play the doubles, and, and Eric Van Dillen didn't want to play, so they're cheating us, so we can't really win. And <laughs> So we had to calm him down, and, and he played the match of his life, and we won that doubles. And then I had to play Tyriac in the fourth match, and Gorman had lost to Nastasi like, 12 times in a row, so we didn't feel he was going to win that match. and So that was a, a big pressure cooker uh, to play that match against Tyria. 
Did you get close to squaring up to Tyriac at one stage? Just about, yeah. He uh, he was pulling all sorts of things, and uh, and the neutral referee uh, actually said to me before the match, "You better win the match easily." I said, "I'm not going to change any calls." And I said, "Well, you know, if you're not going to change it, who is?" He said, "Good luck." And so it was. Uh, he was intimidated by the situation, and and it was a it was a, the ultimate challenge to stay focused in that situation. But you did. I was able to win, but it wasn't easy. It was uh, six love in the fifth. And how did you feel at the end? Was it elated? Was it relief? Was it let's get well, out of here? Uh, yeah, let's get out of here. Was the I, I didn't want to. I was trying to decide whether I wanted to shake hands or not, um, what I might say to him and and uh, or do to him and that sort of thing. But uh, I was pretty hot at the end, and uh, uh, we were relieved to to, uh, to get on that plane and go home. Have you spoken to Tyriac about it since? Yeah, we've we've spoken. He actually, uh, <laughs> we went back the thir- for the thirtieth anniversary of playing the match, and and he said, "I can't believe you're coming back." I said, "I can't either." But uh, he actually offered me his plane to to fly to uh, Athens, which is where I was going after that exhibition that we played, and so we uh, yeah we're friendly. So you took up his offer. I did. Yeah, it was very nice. Stan Smith on the hypercharged Davis Cup final of 1972. There were plenty more hypercharged matches behind the Iron Curtain, mostly involving Czechoslovakia, but those are tales for another day. By 2001, the Iron Curtain and the Soviet Union had been gone for a decade, but new tensions enveloped the world. On the 9th of September 2001, New York was hit by the terrorist attacks now known simply as 9-11. It happened just 38 hours after Leighton Hewitt had won his first major, beating Pete Sampras in the US Open final in that same city. The Australian had left New York by the time the first plane hit the Twin Towers, but he was still caught up in it. The following morning after I won the US Open, you have to do the rounds of media and talk shows and all that, but I had to get back for... We had a Davis Cup semi-final in Sydney. We were playing Sweden uh, the following weekend, so I had to try and get out of there as as soon as possible. Um, So after doing all that media stuff, I was on the... The flight roughly around 6 o'clock out of New York on the Monday evening. Um, So I flew across from New York to L.A. and then took the connection from L.A. to Sydney. And, yeah, 9-11 happened on the Tuesday morning, I think between 8 and 9 o'clock maybe, something that time. So that happened while we were actually flying on the L.A. to Sydney flight at the time. It was weird because I was there was press conferences and everything meant to be happening as soon as I landed in Sydney. But as soon as we touched down in Sydney Airport, uh, the Federal Australian Police came on the plane and uh, said that nobody could leave and we had to fill out all forms and said there'd been uh, something had happened over in New York Airport and everyone had to fill out forms to whether they saw anything uh, that went before we left from New York. And you couldn't fathom how things had changed within that 12 hours, basically, since I'd been there. Uh, and walking around the streets of New York, and and obviously the press conference, everything uh, got cancelled in Australia, and um, yeah, it was a a really weird moment for me, to be honest, Um, after being on such a high, and then now having questions about a lot of the people that I'd celebrated with as well, uh, just 24 hours before, because I knew they were doing all the tourist things in New York, um, and what had happened around the World Trade Centre. Yeah, it was a, a... it was a tough period in my life, to be honest. Yeah. Did it dampen the sense of success? 
it puts everything into perspective, I guess. Um, and that the US Open was just a tennis tournament in a lot of ways. But, um, yeah, I, I had celebrated with some Australian Rules football players that were over there, just potluck. They were on their end-of-season trip. So they came out. They were at the final when I beat Pete, and then they came out and celebrated with me on the Sunday night. And uh, I knew they were going to be going out and, and going to the World Trade. They were actually on their way that morning uh, when it happened. So it was just a lot of thoughts and worries about you know the people that were all caught up in that. And even that next year when I went back to defend my title to think... The, you know, the next time I went back to New York, uh, it had totally changed. Leighton Hewitt on how 9-11 dampened his sense of achievement after winning the US Open. Smith's and Hewitt's tales involve tennis being caught up in geopolitical tensions. But the sport has to exist in the social world too. And in 2022, the Hall of Famer Pam Shriver came out about how she had got involved in a sexual relationship with her late coach Don Candy during her playing days. So, why did she tell the story, especially so many years after the relationship had happened? I didn't tell my story because I wanted to cast any kind of shame or blame on, uh, you know, Don Candy. I really did it because the whole syndrome of uh, either a coach or a team member crossing over the lines and ending up having uh, a sexual relationship with their player is totally inappropriate it's a it's a power imbalance it's a it's a position of trust and then the position of trust is used in a way to gain access to you physically that should never happen um, so basically I told my story knowing that in the decades since in the decades before it's happened way too much including right now in this era right now and I just see, I've seen too many players' careers get negatively impacted by this. And I also think it doesn't do the coaching profession. I don't think it makes coaches or physical trainers or wh whoever on the team abuses the relationship. It doesn't make their profession any better either. Like the coaching profession in tennis would be a lot more professional and it would be healthier if the team members just stuck to the on-court uh, or the things that make you better on the court and did not, and you do not cross over the lines. You do not blur the lines. It's way too complicated. And oftentimes you're, you're obviously usually the players, the younger way, sometimes way younger. In my case, it was 30 years younger and you just don't know what to do. You don't know how to stop it. You're afraid. You're afraid it's going to hurt your game if you don't, you know, follow the path that where it's headed and it just happens. It can just happen Without you kind of realizing, so I don't know. I wanted, uh, I wanted my voice to be in there, to weigh in. But if you've got some, let's say, teenage girl who has been brought up with orthodoxy about being a high achiever in sport, who's been told you've got to give everything to this, you've got to, you know, make sure that you're totally focused on your tennis, and then that girl is in a position where there's a choice between either a relationship, which deep down she knows is not right, right, or the feeling of, do I actually come off this idea of doing everything to further my career? How does one create the environment mm -hmm. whereby that is not the dilemma that I've just painted it as? Yeah, well, you have to do a lot of educational training uh, where people have to realize both sides, both the player and the team members have to realize that when you complicate things by crossing over the lines, 
you are really putting your player in the most amount of risk. Um, it might be okay for a little while, but in the end, it's a it's a losing proposition for both, especially if the player is really young. And I also felt like it was important for parents, and I know the role of the parent can also be a problem, but you know, parents have to go in with their eyes wide open. If they think that their child, who might be not such a child anymore, but let's say 16, 17, 18, they're out on the tour. Um, they just have to realize that I think the family and, um, and the parents, this is really the onus on the parents, have to realize that things can happen and to keep their eyes wide open. Like my parents had no idea. And that was part of my whole shame about it was like, and I never could tell my mom. My mom died a year and a half ago. And part of the reason I felt more comfortable, I think, telling my story is I didn't feel like I was going to crush anybody. My coach had died. His wife had died. You know, I was decades past this happening, but yet I just know it's, uh, it, it needs to go in a different direction. And I believe it is. Did you get good resonance from coming out with the story? Yeah. I mean, like, it's never easy, is it? I mean, I had to tell my kids were old enough. They're all late teenagers, 17, 17 and 18. I, I, I wanted them to know what I was going to do. Um, you know, I, I told my sister, you know, but I, I just felt like it was time. And I also felt that I needed to come to grips. That was something that had happened in my life that changed my entire pathway, changed my pattern in relationships. It changed you know, basically, I feel like it it hindered my ability to develop a healthy relationship because the first one was so full of shame and hiding and secretive, and that's not the way it should be. I mean, when you care about somebody and, you know, it should be a very happy, open situation. Do you ever wonder whether you might have been a, a different tennis player? I hesitate to say better tennis player because you achieved so much anyway. Had you not had that relationship? Well, I do look back. At the, at the time, the five and a half years where I was in the relationship, and I think back to how much anger I had on the court. And I do think a lot of my anger was in this whole situation of knowing this relationship never should have gone down the pathway. Uh, I didn't know what to do about it for the longest time. Um, and so I kind of dealt with it by being angry. Productively? Mm-hmm. It helped me cope, but no. Anger on the tennis court for me kind of took my ability away from having clarity of thought. So in the, in the long run, for the most part, no, it did not help. But it was a way for me to kind of, it was the only way I could sort of get through it. The very brave Pam Shriver talking about her own situation, but mainly to enforce the message that coaches who get emotionally involved with the person they're trying to make into a better tennis player are undermining their main aim, as well as not helping the person they're working with. If the three voices we've heard from are all talking about heavy stuff, let's take a slightly lighter turn and enter the world of the James Bond movies. The fifth film in the franchise with Roger Moore as Bond, Octopussy, also featured the Indian tennis legend Vijay Amritraj, and he even used his tennis racket in the car chase he was involved in. So how did Vijay get hired to be in a Bond movie? Actually, I was picked off the centre court at Wimbledon after my Connors match in, uh, in 81. Um, the late Cubby Broccoli, the producer of the Bond pictures, and his wonderful daughter, who's a good friend of mine now, uh, Barbara, 
uh, asked me to have tea and they said that, uh, listen, we're doing this picture, we've tested over 100 actors for the role, we haven't come up with the right person, you know, would you mind doing a screen test? We'd love to try you out. And uh, I said, you know what, let me do it as a laugh. Very few people can say they worked at Pinewood in the morning and played at Wimbledon in the afternoon. You know? So I said, okay, let me give it a go. And, and the next thing they said was, listen, you're, you're perfect for it. We'd like to sign you for 14 weeks. And so all of a sudden, my first major motion picture was a Bond picture. And uh, I said, listen, I'm still playing on the tour. So they let me off to work for three weeks and go off and play four tournaments and come back and do three weeks. And I was concerned about working all my scenes with the great Roger Moore, whom I had never met. And the next thing I know, you know, he walks up to me on the first day of uh, shooting and said how thrilled he is that I had accepted to be with them in the picture. Well, you know, he was a hobby tennis player. He was. Very passionate. He loved his tennis. And, uh, and then, of course, we got along ex- exceedingly well. Lovely, lovely man. Just the most gentle and funniest guys I've ever met. And then we ended up working at the UN together because he, he took over from the late Audrey Hepburn as a UNICEF global ambassador. And I was appointed by Kofi Annan as a messenger of peace. So we ended up working together post the picture as well. And we became really good friends. And you had a line in the film about... You were an MI6 yes. agent, and yet uh, you talked about, oh, it's improved my back end. <laughs> yes, which, by the way, Roger threw in. He said that would make a funny line. And my name was also different in the picture, but Roger couldn't say it. So he said, listen, I only know him as VJ. Let's just call him VJ. Oh, so that came about as a result <laughs> of Roger not knowing... What was the name that you were supposed to Intervening. Be? It was a very long name. They wanted to give you a long Indian name and make it, you know, in your face kind of thing. And Roger said, listen, that's it. You know, I know him as VJ. He's going to be VJ. Did you ever play tennis with Roger? We did. We did play tennis. And, uh, but again, you know, it was just those moments uh, after just meeting him and sitting down with him and, and doing, doing things with him for so many years afterwards was what made uh, my friendship with him grow. Vijay Amritraj bridging the gap between tennis and the silver screen. Never has a tennis racket been used to fend off so many baddies. We're going to end this podcast with a tale of how doing the right thing can bring unexpected benefits. Mats Villander was just 17 when he won the French Open, and great things were forecast for him. But he then hit a very difficult period of his career, well before his golden year of 1988, when he won three of the four Grand Slam titles. Villander told me the story of how he unwittingly profited from a decision he took that was not focused on himself, but on the wider benefit of the sport. The biggest setback I had was after I won the French in 85, because now I've won one each of the four, four, four years that I've literally that I've played them. After I lost to Stefan in Melbourne in December 85, I let it slip. I had six, seven months when I, when I could have gone away from the top. For some reason, I met Matt Doyle, and he explained to me that if you get a little stronger physically, you're going to add this many miles per hour on your forehand, backhand serve. You're going to be stronger at the net. You're going to jump higher. Your second serve is going to be, and, um, and I bought it. Physical strength. And I would have never met Matt Doyle unless I was interested in the future of the game because I was the vice president of the ATP at the time, and he was the president. So again, I'm like, okay, so doing good deeds brought me to actually sit down before board meetings and have a couple of beers with Matt Doyle. And, of course, a couple of beers after the board meeting with Matt Doyle because he's the Irish-American, and that's what we did. Discussed the topics of the board meeting. 
at the bar afterwards or before for a beer, not, but a beer and an a beer. After. So again, I'm like, oh, okay. So because I wasn't complete self-absorbed, but I actually said yes to when they asked me if I wanted to be the vice president or on the board, because I would have never volunteered for it. No waste. But as soon as they asked me, there was no waste to say no. So again, it's the same thing. I wouldn't have met Matt Doll if it wasn't for me actually being not a nice guy, but I felt responsibility because I'm on tour and I'm making money. They're asking you to do it. Well, then you got to do it. It's not my own test. You got to do it. So I think all of those things is why I think that I have a Hall of Fame career because I've always followed and tried to be fair on the court. I've tried to be as serious as I possibly could. And of course, sometimes even I was not serious on every point. Of course, I tanked at times, but it was never a tank that would be, that would put a black mark on the game. Maybe on me a little bit, but no one would know that. But I, yeah, there's times when I'm like... So you were trying to be a citizen of the game? Yes, exactly, exactly. And that's, I think, is the answer to your first question. And I still am. I'm trying, I know that in here, I, and this is why I've been able to go out and say things about even Roger Federer that might not have been the nicest words, but because to me, I'm, there's nothing more important than the game. It's not Federer or Nadal or Djokovic or it's, there's nothing or no one that comes even close to being as important as the game that's played inside the fences, over the net, inside the lines, because that game has proven to prove to build character and build Arthur Ashe and Billie Jean King. Where'd they come from? From playing tennis. So do you, do you see your TV work as part of your citizenship of tennis? Absolutely. Yes, 100%. I'm trying to give back as much as I can. I'm not going out on the... I don't, I don't go out and do things that I don't want to do. For example, I don't social media. You know, I could... Man, I could put Instagram posts up every day with something. Oh, I interviewed Nadal yesterday. I ran into whoever, whoever, Usain Bolt the other year. We did an interview. And I don't do that. Because to me, it doesn't belong with tennis. It's a complete event. And I might be wrong and I might be stubborn, whatever. But to me, it's not. It's going too far. For me, it's like it's what happens on the court. The way that they apply their ability to what's happening inside the lines, over the net. That's the only thing I care about. Really is. Mats Villander on the rewards he earned for thinking of the broader game of tennis rather than just himself. Whatever profession or leisure time activity people are into, it's important to remember that it has to operate in the context of the wider world, whether that's as a force for good or to take a back seat when more important things happen. And tennis is no exception. You've been listening to just a few of the fascinating moments from the first season of the Tennis Worthy Podcasts brought to you by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. We have one more collection of excerpts presented by Chris Bowers before season two of these long-form interviews with the tennis legends begins. Next time, the theme will be the advice our legends give to youngsters who aspire to tennis greatness. And equally importantly, advice to their parents. We have eight legends lined up to give you and your friends that advice, so don't miss that. And remember, of course, you can hear the full interviews from season one by going to tennisfame.com slash podcast. Be sure to give them all a listen. They are terrific. Until then, I'm Brett Habern. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Worthy Podcast.